Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to episode 215 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. What's happening, Dan? Oh, just uh, bracing for a Memorial Day weekend. So happy Memorial Day weekend to those for whom it is relevant. And happy Memorial Day weekend to all of my fellow Uh, TV reporters who are out there covering the strike and who are exhausted from upfronts and everything else that the past couple of months has really thrown at us in in rapid fire succession. So including succession. Succession. I see what you did or didn't do there. Yeah. Well, we are in week four of the writer's strike. That will be impacting next week's ATX television festival, Dan, where you are going to be moderating a couple of panels that sadly do not include another top five live sadly indeed but next year is another year uh but yes i will be in austin from next thursday to sunday so come say hi come to some of the panels that i am moderating i am what are you moderating man let's go i am moderating what am i moderating i am moderating a panel for uh justified city primeval which will be i believe all actors that is the Interesting challenge that the organizers are facing this year. God, I feel for uh, <laughs> for Caitlin and Emily and Jen because they are, you know, they had they had two years of the pandemic and two years of virtual ATX festivals. Then everything last year came back to quote unquote normal or semi normal, and then this year they're organizing around <sighs> around not knowing what the rules are. So yes, so I'm doing a a justified panel on opening night. I'm doing a panel with the stars of Minx. I'm supposed to do something with some of the people on This Fool. So lots of these things are things where some of the people have been on the podcast. And then I'm doing something on uh, Fast and AVOD services, which has been, of course, a thing that we've discussed many a time on this podcast. So yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Anyway, I always enjoy it. It is one of the it is one of the great festivals, and I'm happy to be there to to support the organizers and support the festival, even if this year is a little bit topsy-turvy because... Our world is a little bit topsy-turvy. Yeah, ha- make sure to have some uh, some queso for me. I'll be bummed that to not be joining you and uh, to miss all the kind people at, at, at ATX. I was looking forward to going this year. But alas. Anyway, before we get into this week's episode, let's do a quick little preview here because the week ahead is going to be a very big one for finales. You've got Succession and Barry concluding their runs. Then you've got the, the Ted Lasso and Yellow Jackets wrapping their respective seasons with Ted Lasso possibly being a serious film. It's incredible to me that we still really don't know what what the future of that franchise is. 
Uh, so anyway, for next week, we're planning a very big critics-focused episode to discuss all four of the awards, darlings. So be sure you're caught up by this time next week. Or just know that there will be spoilers in those segments, and you can come back to them when you are caught up. So, yes. But yes, that'll be a big podcast next week, and this week's podcast is not small. That sounds like a good reason to get things underway. So leading off with the week's top headlines. Number one. As the strike rounds out its first headline, it was a big week for streamers looking to make their platforms profitable. HBO Max became simply Max this week and honestly really kind of stepped in it right off the, the bat with the new way their interface displayed credits. <clears throat> With the new way, the new interface displayed credits all grouped under creators with no delineation between writer or director or exec producer or, you know, the actual creator. Max, yeah, it's weird to call it just Max now, says it was an oversight in the transition to the new platform, which also now requires you to download a new app on mobile and smart TVs. And honestly, as my mom would say, oy vey. Yeah, look, every rolling out streaming service is going to have whatever bumps in the road it has and people will complain about things that are both uh entirely logical but probably glitchy like for example th there's been a lot of amusement slash annoyance about stuff like uh the fact that alphabetically things are listed alphabetically by by the rather than what the title is i've seen a lot of people complaining about how you have if something is like i don't know whatever it is the Ted Lasso, it would be, uh, that's a really stupid example, darn it, because then it would be under T regardless. How about The Last of Us? Yes, there you are, that it's under the, as opposed to Last of Us, comma, the, um, which would be much more logical. But also, anyone who's a TV critic knows that a lot of our screener sites, for some reason, do that as well. So, uh, for some reason, that's just, I guess, what the default is. And Max, of course, put out a statement uh, the day after people got annoyed about the whole creators thing, saying that it was about data transfer or something, which is, look, you know, whatever. I mean, if it is, it is. But on the surface, sure. it's on the surface. It's not like these, these things don't go through a million different mock-ups and approvals and everything else. Also, presumably some of the data is simply being transferred from another platform, the HBO Max platform, and that platform did have writer and director as credits. So at some point, someone eliminated those two fields and then threw everything completely randomly into a creator's field. Anyway, it was a, it was a pretty ridiculous thing, and uh, we'll actually talk a little bit more about the max of it all. I see what you did there, the max. That sounds like a Saved by the Bell reference. It was not in any way intended to be a, a Saved by the Bell reference, uh, and also I would categorize the max under the as opposed to max. Um, continuing along with a different streaming service, with an uninspired name, uh, Paramount Plus with Showtime will launch on June 27th and, not surprisingly, with the additional content, will come with a rate hike. And over at Netflix, the streamer has also started cracking down on password sharing in the United States and outlined new pricing tiers for friends and family members outside of the account holder's household. So, you know, it, it, who, who can blame the services for raising their prices as we're heading towards a potential window with less and less original programming? 
Yeah, and a complete and possible total work stoppage if the Directors Guild and the Actors Branch both decide to strike when their contracts, respective contracts, expire June 30th. So speaking of the strike, that, that it has slowed the announcement of new series orders and renewals, but... That still didn't stop Amazon from picking up a new show, with a streamer announcing this week an order for Butterfly, a spy thriller starring an exec by, produced by Daniel Day Kim that will begin production, you guessed it, after the strike ends. And they also ordered a second season of Citadel, right? I, we I already I, had I, that. That we, we broke that exclusively, I feel like, a month or two ago. Yeah, so. this, this was not a surprise whether or not it was a real announcement or or not there was there was no way given the amount that that first season cost and their ambitious plans for it that they were just going to say yeah that was a six season show and that was all it was ever going to be mean a six episode show yes, yeah six i know what you're saying show. yes it uh whatever anyway it's uh yeah not, thanks for that water is wet embargo amazon i appreciate the uh the text at 10 30 at night making sure i saw that very yeah, you know, they're they're very they're very pleased. They want you to know it's a huge hit internationally or something to that effect. Sure. With no Give me the numbers. numbers to justify it. Um, and finally, Paramount Plus has handed out a speedy second season renewal to Sylvester Stallone's unscripted series, The Family Stallone. Eh? Yeah, yeah. I got nothing to say on that, Dan. I have nothing to say about it either. Um, I know that it exists, and I don't think screeners were sent out to critics, and so it is absolutely a thing that I have not watched a second of yet. But hey, Memorial Day weekend is coming up. Maybe I'll settle in and watch an episode of The Family Stallone. Up next. Number two. Last week, we put out a call for mailbag questions and got many, many questions. Uh... As always, you can send us those questions at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Uh, if we don't answer your questions, it's really nothing personal. And similarly, if we put out additional calls for questions, it didn't mean we didn't like the questions that you gave us. Sometimes it's as simple as... What is the thing that we want to talk about in any given week? What is the thing that's kind of cool and hip that we want to get down to business on? And honestly, how many segments do we have to fill this week? It's two. <laughs> Indeed. So we have broken down the mailbag segments into two segments. Uh, up first, it's sort of a general hodgepodge. And we're going to start with a question from Corey. We got several variations on this question. So... Uh, when Warner Discovery began to remove shows from their service, my recollection was that they were doing it to avoid paying residuals, and it was happening only due uh, to the timing of the merger. Now Disney Plus is doing the same thing, but they obviously aren't in the process of a merger. What are the rules when it comes to deleting shows from streaming services? Honestly, I don't really know that there are rules. I mean, these are shows that they have paid for. They have paid for the licensing fees. They pay the residuals. They pay to green light them. They pay to develop them, et cetera. And they control the rights to them, at least uh, you know, as a platform. So they can decide if they would like to keep paying the licensing fee to keep them on their service. The way I think of it on the flip side is when Friends left Netflix, that was an option. You know, that was a show that... Let me start, start start over there. Friends is a show that was produced by Warner Brothers Television and Warner Brothers licensed it to Netflix. And at a certain point, either Warner Brothers or Netflix said, no thanks. And obviously we know what, what happened here. This was Warner Brothers saying, we're going to keep this amazing asset for our own platform. So they pulled it off the table and said, Netflix, we're not going to license this to you anymore because we're going to license this show to ourselves." 
basically one arm of the studio or one arm of the conglomerate paying another arm of of the same company to license the show for streaming. So it's it's kind of similar here, except in the shitty fashion in that they're pulling this content that they already have licensed and they just don't want to keep paying the licensing fees to to keep these underperforming shows on the platform. And it's all part of a big process to cut costs. It's not just, you know, to avoid paying residuals and, you know, it's to, these licensing fees are way more than the residuals over time. But the the larger issue is all these companies are trying to turn a profit. We talked about this in headlines and, you know, everyone's raising rates, cracking down on password sharing, it, bulking up their platform to get more subscribers to come in, launching ad-supported tiers, et cetera. It's all in the name of making money, which honestly is my answer for pretty much any question when you boil it all down. It just depends on how many different steps it takes to get there. So yeah, the, for delisting, I mean, in some cases we know that you know, the why, why the last man, showrunner Eliza Clark and former TV's top five guest, Eliza Clark, tweeted that she didn't even know. She found out about this from the from the press when the stories hit, which is a heartbreaking thing to happen after everything else that happened to that poor show in that whole process. Years of development. Anyway, we can go on. I can do a whole segment on just why the last man. But anyway, it's just it's just a shitty thing to happen all in the name of saving a buck. And then there are the tax ramifications, which I do not understand. I don't know if you have a better sense than I do about impairments. I do not have any sense of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll use Westworld as an example. That was a really expensive show to make. It is for a platform, HBO, that doesn't have an ad tier. Obviously, it's a premium cable network. And then you put it on HBO Max. You're not. You're basically not generating any revenue because you're selling it from one hand of the company to the other because it's produced by Warner Brothers. And then it winds up being this huge, expensive dud. So they pulled it off the platform and then de and decided to take the, the write down and saying, we lost X amount of money making this season of Westworld. And so they pull it off the platform and then they license it to an ad supported company. I can't remember where it went. It was like Roku or something. And you, you wind up being able to monetize at least it's like squeezing the last drops out of an orange, right? So think of it that way. So you're you're taking the tax right off because you lost money making this thing. And then you're trying to to squeeze every last drop of money that you can possibly get by putting it on a platform with ads. And there that platform is going to hope that people will come in and say, "Oh, well, I didn't want to pay $15 a month for HBO or HBO Max, and now I can watch it for free on whatever ad-supported platform it is. So, yeah. A lot of the stuff with the Disney, with the things that Disney was pulling, uh, or maybe or maybe not is pulling, because there were also lots of conversations after the initial stories came out yeah, at the end of done. last week. Yeah, that they... That they and it's not just Disney Plus, it's Hulu as decisions. well. Yes, the, I, I meant Disney in general. I, yeah. meant, not, I mm -hmm. meant the company, not the... Not the streaming platform, because yes, there were, there were multiple Hulu shows that were pulled, multiple Hulu movies that were pulled... And then there were several things that suggested that Disney was being like, okay, fine, we weren't actually going to pull this one or we weren't actually going to pull that one. But even I mean, still, there was some backlash about some LGBTQ yeah. back, you know, focus titles. Um, obviously, you've got Pride Month starting in just a few days, too. So that's not a, not a great look, especially after the way that uh, uh, Disney handled the whole Florida don't say gay stuff. But yeah, I mean, you know, it, to put it to go back a few decades when shows originally came out and there was no no streamer, no DVD, no VHS, nothing, and a show was canceled, it just disappeared. So in a way, it's reverting back to that system. It just, these are all things that 
creators and fans and every, everyone in between thought would live on forever on, on one or some sort of platform. And, and there's still a good chance that some of these titles could get sold elsewhere the way that Westworld was. So it's a, it's a wait and see thing. I'll be interested to see if there's anybody who's going to be able to make those accommodations because, yeah, it used to be that if a show lasted for six episodes or nine episodes or whatever, that it was gone forever and you'd never be able to see it. And then there was the period in the late 90s, early aughts where the DVD marketplace was actually lucrative enough that you could put some of those shows out on DVD. And if you actually could monetize a very small but very passionate fan base, whether it was Firefly or, you know, I love my DVDs of, of Wonderfalls and Greg the Bunny and Action, et cetera. I've talked about those over and over again. Like at that exact moment, there really and truly was a marketplace where they could take the things that were failures in their actual, you know, distribution hubs and say, okay, here's another way we can make money. And if that happens to be the fast AVOD services, whatever, that's an answer. I just don't know necessarily like anyone is necessarily feeling like with all of these that the solution is going to be, okay, we're going to make sure that they find a home on Pluto, Tubi, Roku, take your pick. Some of them are, at this point at least, simply going to get lost. And that's obviously not good. It's not good for the people who made the show. It's not good for the people who loved the show. But also on a purely... Uh, ephemeral level, it's not good for the archiving of of content in terms of how we look at our society. It's it's just not good when things vanish. I mean, why the last man was a really important show in terms of transgender visibility. Um, and then I, you know, I heard a rumor that pitch was being removed from Hulu, which is if you're a baseball fan and a woman, that's a, a just a heartbreaker. So. Again, you know, we're, we're we're pouring one out for all of those affected by by this these continued decisions. But moving on, next up, listener June emails: Can someone turn on a light? So many shows these days are poorly lit. Is this because that they're hiding wrinkles or bad effects in darkness? What gives? Dan, she says that she rewatched a couple of early aughts shows, including Battlestar Galactica, Mad Men, and Breaking Bad, and those were well lit. So. Why is TV in the dark now all of a sudden? I think that it's simply, it's just bad lighting and there's going to be a lot of bad TV. And maybe there's, maybe there's some explanation wherein you would think, okay, let's just say in a 600 show universe, maybe not every cinematographer is ready for prime time or whatever. But I don't think that's really what the case is. Also, you will get some ambiguity if you debate with people as to whether some of these incredibly dark shows are actually well shot or not. I will I will make fun of Ozark until the cows come home for its failure to turn on the lights when characters are just sitting in darkened rooms. But Ozark has been nominated for multiple Cinematographers Guild and uh, and Emmys for cin its cinematography. So somebody thinks that's a well shot show. I don't think those people are right. I think if you go and you look, a good, well-shot show can shoot in near darkness and it doesn't feel like it's dark. A show like Hannibal, for example, was a show that never had any problems shooting in, in darkness and you always could see what was happening or you could always see exactly what they wanted you to see was happening. A show like uh, the shows that the questioners asked, those are shows which absolutely worked in darkness when they wanted to. You could just see what was happening. A good show like 
Better Call Saul can shoot extensively in darkness and you see what's happening. A bad show or a badly shot show or a questionably considered show when it comes to its cinematography doesn't do that. And so something like Ozark, something like the one notorious episode of House of the Dragon last year where nobody had a clue what was happening for the first, uh, you know, 30 minutes. The problem is that people are simultaneously watching their television on both bigger screens than ever before. You know, people's at-home televisions, if they have such a thing, in some cases are growing and growing and growing from, you know, used to be 27 inches was a huge TV, and now people have 70-inch TVs and whatever. And some of these shows that are shot in darkness, whatever, probably look great on somebody's 70-inch television. But people are also watching the shows on their phones, on their laptops, on their watches, whatever they're watching, and there's no way you can see anything in those. And it doesn't need to necessarily be either good or bad. Like, I'm, I, you know, everything is kind of the, the great split between a show that's brilliantly shot, whether it's Hannibal or, or Better Call Saul or whatever, or a show that I think is badly shot, whether it's Ozark or some of those episodes of House of Dragon. But I would point to something like Apple TV Plus's Silo, which is a show that is all inside, all internal. The characters are all in an environment where the lighting is subpar throughout. And yet, you can absolutely see nearly everything that's happening on that show. It is not a great show. I would never say that is a show with brilliant cinematography. I would say that is a show in which the cinematography shows you what is happening on the screen, which is such a low bar to be setting. You know, did you shoot it so that you can simultaneously justify what the lighting in the environment is and make it so that people can see what's happening? And so, I, like, I want to praise Silo for doing something that seems really rudimentary, but that lots of shows simply can't or don't do. Um, yeah, it's it's just that there, the, and and it all comes back to the idea that a lot of the shows that the questioner asked about, they're prestige shows, and so darkness becomes associated with prestige, and not everyone can do it well. So yeah. I remember I used to have to turn up the brightness on my laptop when I had to when I covered The Walking Dead extensively, and that was a show that was so dark, even with the, the brightness turned all the way up, I was still struggling to see half of the, uh, what was happening in some of these scenes. So yeah, and 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 then you know the, the questioner June uh, didn't even get into questions about sound design, which similarly a, a murky thing. The number of uh, shows that I have to watch with subtitles now is is higher than ever before, and let's just say some of that is probably about getting old and maybe losing hearing. But some of it is also just about sound mixing and, uh, you know, the the sort of the impact of the Christopher Nolan version of, of sound design, wherein the dialogue is not at the front of the sound design, because that's just not what he wants to accentuate, but not everyone can do it. So, yeah, there's, there's no good answer other than some people don't make great TV. Continuing along, Charlie writes... And this is another one that multiple people were were curious about, or have been curious. Curious about Yellowstone uh, stopping on Peacock and restarting as virtually the same show with the same cast in the same universe back on Paramount. It seems so obviously a cheat to get the rights back from the network that bought the show originally. It would seem that Peacock would have a legal case to protect its original investment in the show. What am I missing here? Nothing. Um, this is also not a new practice. Um, I wrote about this for the first time a couple of years ago when AMC announced that The Walking Dead 
as we the flagship series was ending and instead they were doing a bunch of spin-offs with popular characters that basically spoiled the end of the, the flagship series so that you you knew that uh, these handful of characters were going to live on because they were going to their own shows but th- this is honestly it's 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 again it's not a new practice it's it's a financial decision and you know I went back and I and I looked this up because I remember you know Paramount CEO Bob Backish I did a story on this years ago when they first started licensing content to third-party companies. And the idea was to expose these shows that really hadn't gotten that kind of exposure on platforms where they fit. Obviously, Peacock is home of all things Dick Wolf. That's a procedural with a very older skewing audience, which is similarly, at the time anyway, the people who were watching Yellowstone with Kevin Costner. So that made sense. It also sent millions over to Paramount because they licensed the show to a third party. So when they decided to to end the flagship show, honestly, because Kevin Costner and the whole that whole thing, the opportunity was there to, to hit reset and to come up with an, a new show, a new title, and it's a loophole. I mean, any of these companies could, could, could wind up doing this. But I went back and looked it up, and Bob Backish said in February last year that he called the, the original deal that he set to license Yellowstone to Peacock unfortunate. So obviously this is a way of righting a wrong and there's also, a, you know, a, currently a, a lawsuit that involves Warner Media and Paramount Global over South Park because what they're saying is Paramount Global, who owns South Park, obviously it aired on Comedy Central, that's part of the whole portfolio, they licensed in a $500 million deal the South Park library to HBO Max, which made sense because HBO Max, when it launched, had a crap ton of animated shows that fit a similar audience, including but not limited to Rick and Morty. So they licensed it there. And then what they did was Paramount greenlit a series of South Park original movies that aired on Paramount Plus. And when you take one and not the other, they basically said, this is why Warner Brothers, Warner Discovery wound up suing Paramount Global because we paid to get this as an exclusive. And now here you are with new installments of South Park. So that's still up up in the air. But yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me to see Peacock sit here and come and say, you guys found a loophole in this. But then again, it is a loophole for a reason. You know, you review all the contracts and you see what you're able to do. And here you are. Up next, we've got a question from Gabe for Dan. who Gabe would like to know if there's any show that premiered this year that you haven't talked about in Critics Corner, but that you have watched and enjoyed. It's a tough one because I, I really do cover a lot of ground in Critics Corner. and I usually Yeah, go, you do, buddy. <laughs> and I usually try to go out of my way to make sure I've watched enough of the episodes of whatever it is that uh, our wonderful colleague Angie Hahn has reviewed to talk about things. But that doesn't mean that I get to everything. Sometimes things look silly and I don't get to them, or sometimes the streamer network, whatever in question, doesn't bother you know, whatevering, uh, sending out critics, uh, screeners to critics. And then sometimes you get sort of strange or not really strange situations. You get realistic situations in a 600 show universe where sometimes things are really just utterly under my radar. So like I had a plane flight in November coming back from Europe, uh, with COVID, and I watched all six episodes of Sherwood, a uh, drama that aired on BritBox last year. 
And that was good enough that it actually made my second 10 for, for 2022. And so I know the questioner asked about this year, but I, I never talked about Sherwood at all on the podcast. And it's just a really, really good show. I talked extensively last week about um, about Happy Valley, which is a great show with great performances and all of that. I think that if you like Happy Valley and you happen to have BritBox, I, I can go so far as to almost guarantee that you'll like Sherwood. It's it's one of those shows with an absolutely spectacular cast. David Morrissey, Leslie Manville, many, many, many people who you will recognize from things. Uh, quite enjoyed it. Uh, what else? I don't know. I feel like I, I got in a couple plugs for Hulu's Extraordinary earlier this year. Another show that I just found really, really appealing and fun uh, and a show that it felt like people were discovering for a couple weeks and then it kind of, uh, you know, like like everything else in the collective consciousness, it, it sort of got memory hold and that's how it goes. But there's it's already been renewed for a second season and that's one that I enjoyed. It's it's very much a lighter version of something like The Boys, uh, you know, superhero takeoff, but I quite enjoyed it. And then I don't know that I ever mentioned Unstable on the podcast. Uh, when Angie reviewed it, she... <laughs> She was way more positive than I expected her to be uh, because it looked like this was just kind of a, a silly show that existed entirely to have Rob Lowe and John Owen Lowe, his son, star in a show together. And I think Angie's review was the first time that I realized that it was created by Victor Fresco, who did Better Off Ted and stuff. And um, it's, a, it's a show that's really a mixed bag. But I did watch the entire show and I fairly convinced, I fairly consistently laughed at it. And sometimes I think I laughed at things really, really hard. Uh, uh, Sean Clifford from Fleabag is, is fantastic in it. Like every line of dialogue she reads is tremendous. And Rob Lowe, of, you know, Rob Lowe is the star of the show and he's really, really funny. Rob Lowe has always been a funny guy. This is a chance for Rob Lowe to be as goofy as he's ever wanted to be. And he's really funny in it. I'm less sure his son is is effective, but I don't think he's a detriment to the show, which is enough. Like maybe he'll get better. Why the heck not? Uh, but yeah, Rob Lowe's great. Uh, Sean Clifford's fantastic. A couple of the supporting actors, uh, Rachel Marsh in particular, another of those actors who every single line out of her mouth made me laugh. Uh, and that's, that's impressive. So there's, there's three that kind of fit into that, that I didn't review in critics corner, but that, that I really enjoyed. So Sherwood from last year, it's on uh, BritBox. And if you like Happy Valley, you'll like it. Extraordinary, I did talk about. Uh, so, you know, check it out. Unstable, already been renewed for a second season on Netflix. So that's that's easy. But it really is funnier than you think it is. And I'll say again, Victor Fresco, extraordinarily talented. Uh, and he makes things funny. Great supporting cast. And if you like Better Off Ted, probably you'll find laughs in this. So. Okay, now we are moving into a different segment. Number three. Yeah, this is a mailbag segment focused on Warner Brothers Discovery. So, if you again, if you have questions regarding anything, including Max or beyond, you can drop us an email at TV's Top 5. That's a number five at THR.com. Uh, first, with the launch of Max this week, is there any indication of a bigger vision emerging? Peter asks that this seems like a good time to put forward something illustrating where Max is going, but the sparse promotional slides tacked onto shows like Succession with a, a voiceover merely saying that this soon will be Max seemed rushed. 
And with Succession and Barry bowing out and no major new launches paired with the rebrand with apologies to the animated series Gremlins, what are subscribers supposed to take away? Dan, I'll t- let you take this one. I mean, what people are, what subscribers are supposed to take away is that there's a tremendous amount of programming here and that that is what there is on, on Max, just as it was on, on HBO Max. And I, you can sort of, you can make fun of Warner Brothers Discovery for dropping the HBO because HBO connoted quality. And realistically, that is what they did. They took away the HBO because they felt as if HBO suggested to some people prestige and that there was a lot of discovery content that they wanted to make sure they got in as well. But yeah, if you watch the, out the ad- service, exactly. And, and I think that's just what it is, is you, you watch the ads that they've been running for the transition, like whatever it is with Jason Momoa. And the entire point of it, which is also the exact point that Paramount Plus made when they became Paramount Plus with the whole peak thing. And it's like, oh, look, here's 15 of your favorite characters going to the top of a mountaintop, Paramount. Uh, And that's been kind of what they've been trying to advertise is, okay, we've got crap for whatever mood you happen to be in. Maybe that mood happens to be succession slash Barry slash whatever's good and prestigious on HBO, but maybe it's also property brothers. And maybe it's also just to settle in and watch a repeat of friends, whatever it is. Or Dr. Pimple Popper, which is a crazy title to say that lives alongside the Sopranos. It is. And and that is the, that is where the problem comes. If you start thinking, how has this become a situation wherein Dr. Pimple Popper and Deadwood are under the same roof, and it is the destination for both. And I guess the argument, which is not a wrong argument, is that some days you settle in at the end of a long day of work and you're in the mood to watch an episode of The Wire, and other days you come in from a long day of work and you're in the mood to watch an episode of Dr. Pimple Popper. And so, look, when Paramount changed to Paramount Plus and they started saying, here's all the stuff on one peak, whatever the thing was, whatever the Super Bowl commercial was, clearly didn't work hugely. Their point was trying to remind you kind of what the Paramount brand really meant. And um, and the problem with that is that for a younger generation, the Paramount brand didn't slash doesn't mean anything. That's that's just a reality of the situation. This is not this is not an era in which people see that mountain and go, ah, okay, Paramount, the Gulf and Western Company. It's from all of my favorite movies. I I love that logo. It pops up. It's the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that's what this generation looks at things as being. So they had to tell people, okay, here we have a great brand, but here's what it means if you don't know. Whereas- Yeah, I mean, Discovery has a brand, and that's why Discovery Plus remains a standalone service. HBO has a brand, and that's why they leaned into HBO with the title, with the name originally as HBO Max, because it was designed to say, we're HBO with more, right? But now it's just Max, and I've I've seen some people on social calling it Mox because of the weird logo, which is designed to have a callback to HBO with the O. But it's also like Max on its own doesn't have enough of a connotation with either the things that are that it's best known for, which is Discovery or HBO. But you can't call it HBO Discovery or Discover HBO or anything like that because they don't go together, which is, again, part of the problem with naming a platform that is designed to be something that is all encompassing with some of the best 
brands in television. And that, at the end of the day, this is all done to compete with Netflix, to get every subscriber on the planet into the max world because that's the that's the goal. They want they want to be the 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 the, the one-stop shop that has something for everyone the way that Netflix has has become. Exactly. And so they don't and they don't want to be considered, okay, this is only the place where you go for the the dry aged steak that costs you $75. This is also the place mm, where you steak. It sounds really good. It's as, as we recorded that record this, it's lunchtime. Uh, but, you know, yeah, they're, they're trying to make it clear that, yes, the $75 steak is still on the menu and maybe you have to look for it. I've seen multiple people uh, who have been complaining about the fact that certain hubs that were formerly easy to find on HBO Max are no longer easy to find, like, for example, Turner Classic Movies, which to my mind was always the perhaps the best thing that HBO Max had going. It was, you know, okay, here is actually a supply of really, really good old movies that you could find. Yeah, the same way that Disney was like, here's all of the Disney movies from the vault. Except except, except for the ones that we're now going to put back in the vault or whatever it is that's going yeah, back to the Yeah, except for the, the ones that are problematic, right. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, except for Strong of the South, which will never be available ever, 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 ever. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, so ultimately, uh, yeah, I think I think what Leslie said, the last thing Leslie said is actually really and truly just the answer. It's it's mm, the mistake. No, I was gonna, <laughs> I was go, I was going with the Netflix of it all. The, yeah. the Netflix simply at a certain point decided that their brand was everything. And they didn't need to rebrand it to do that because people didn't necessarily know what Netflix meant otherwise. And so now people just accept Netflix is where there's a little bit of something for everybody and nobody hears Netflix original and thinks, ooh, it's prestigious. They think, okay, it's another thing that's on Netflix. And I think that that's probably where <laughs> where everyone would like for Max to be. It's it's This is not necessarily going to be great television, but it's definitely going to be on Max. So... That's fine. Continuing along, discussing things uh, at Warner Brothers, HBO, Max, Discovery, all of it. How long can David Zaslav hold his seat? And is Casey Bloys ready to take over the big show? Chase, by the way, asked that. So what is your answer to that, Leslie? I mean, I don't think I have a lot of respect for Casey Bloys, but I don't think that's a job that he would want. He is a creative first and foremost. Remember, he came up through the HBO ranks before he wound up getting control, not only of the, the premium cable network, but of the original content on the streamer. So there's still a whole swath of, of that new Warner Discovery fold that he is not familiar with. And that's all things Discovery. Anything that came with David Zosloff in, in this merger is something that Casey is not completely and totally familiar with. So I don't know that that David Zasloff is going anywhere, despite how he's being positioned in the middle of the writer strike, like, you know, going to Cannes and throwing this lavish party and pointing to yachts. And, oh, this is how you can tell that things have changed. There's not 20 yachts out here. There's only two. You know, I mean, getting booed at the Boston University commencement speech, like he's not going anywhere. You know, he is still the face behind this mega merger and this new platform. And until this platform fails, which that's a huge question, he's not going to go anywhere. And in my opinion, Casey Bloys is not the heir apparent. That's all I really have on that, Dan. No, oh, and I think I think that I think it's the right answer is that he is yeah. he is a programming and development guy and and just and, and a, a good one. Absolutely. It's his record does speak for itself on that. And 
And that is such a different job from the thing that David Zaslav is, especially the thing that David Zaslav has kind of become. Like, I think there are people at Warner Brothers and probably people in the general, the AMPTP, who are totally fine with the fact that David Zaslav has just steered into being the bad guy in this strike. And the fact that almost every word out of his mouth is completely tone deaf is simply him being putting a target on himself. And maybe maybe that benefits all of the other guys and all of the other aspects of things is that if everyone is just focused on David Zaslav as being the one ridiculously overpaid rich guy in Hollywood who says dumb things, well, <laughs> heaven knows he's not the only one. So it's it's kind of funny that he has allowed himself or not just allowed himself, steered himself into being that guy for this strike, but it also could totally be strategic. Yeah, I mean, it falls under the, is any press really good press? I mean, and, we are talking about him, we are talking about Max. And if you and if you made however many hundred millions of dollars last year or whatever, as he allegedly made, <laughs> how, how bad are you prepared to make yourself look if that is what your take-home pay is? And I, I'm pretty clear. I, I will tell anyone who is willing to listen for that amount of money. You can paint me as evilly as you want to. I will steer into that. I will I will take the heel turn if you give me two hundred million dollars a year. And wrapping up this Warner Brothers Discovery focused mailbag segment, Dan, Chris asks, with Succession and Barry sadly, but likely correctly ending what will be the tentpole show that will get eyeballs on HBO Max? And Chris does say that he refuses to call it Max. So, Dan, what do you think? I mean, the b one big one premiered this week at Cannes, and that's The Idol from Sam, <laughs> the guy who did Euphoria, Sam Levinson. Currently standing at 26% or 26 on uh, Metacritic. So, uh, so absolutely, that could totally be the, uh, the next big HBO hit. Um, no, what's what's funny about this question, and several people also ask variations on this, and I've seen people ask variations of it on Twitter as well, is that this has been a thing that HBO has done now multiple times. They've had, is this the end of the HBO era looming? Oh no, Game of Thrones is ending. What shall we do? Oh no, Sex in the City is ending. What shall we do? Oh no, The Sopranos is ending. What shall we do? Exactly. I've written at least one of those stories. Oh, for sure. And it's and it's a thing that gets said constantly. And there's always the, there's no way there's going to be another dot, dot, dot. There's no way there's going to be another dot, dot, dot. And, um, and at some point, there might not be. And that is the moment at which suddenly then we start writing the, oh no, what happened to HBO? It's a tragedy. It's whatever. But at least in the short term, to my mind, they've kind of earned the benefit of the doubt that when The Sopranos ends, you just wait a few minutes and dot, dot, dot comes along next, whether it's Game of Thrones or whatever. But you have to remember that Game of Thrones and Veep ended at the exact same time also. And that was one of those, there's no way they can replace them. And then Succession and, uh, and Barry started being there and winning all the awards. And Succession is not the level of hit that Game of Thrones was, and I don't have the numbers, so I don't know if it's the level of hits that the I Sopranos... mean, Succession is a very domestic show. Totally. It's unclear how that travels. Game of Thrones is a global phenomenon with, again, multiple spinoffs already in the works. And on the but, but if you, but if you, But if you look at HBO's schedule, the answer for what the next Game of Thrones is, is it also has Game of Thrones in the title, and House of the Dragon will 
someday presumably return. It was, you know, they, they, I believe, I don't, I don't believe they've taken a step back from the saying all of our scripts for season two are done. So we're shooting them uh statement. So a uh, season two is coming along and assuming that season two does as well as season one, there'll be a season three. And then they announced the, the spinoff uh, with the confusing title at whatever the Warner brothers discovery presentation was. So there's another one. So one of those could well be the next Sopranos or the next Game of Thrones or the and, next And don't succession. forget and don't forget they still have a lot of A plus level originals and I say that not as a critic but as some uh, as shows that have broken through Euphoria is coming back. The Gilded Age is coming back. I've seen a lot of people have started talking about Industry which is a show that has quietly become a, a critical favorite, you know, and they're there, there's so much other stuff when you when you look at, at their pipeline. You know, winning time, you know, you can say what, what you will about season one. That's still cut through the clutter, right? And and then all and then in addition to all of those things which are actually sustainable successes, they've also got this, you know, they they have this very, very successful and very, very long history of the limited series or the movie, and they always get the A-list talent and always get the Emmy nominations. Not, yeah. you know, not every true detective is coming back. Obviously that's an anthology that's moving on without Nick Pizzolatto, but managed to recruit this actress that maybe some of, you know, called named Jodie Foster. I mean, Jake Gyllenhaal is doing a limited series from the creators of Westworld. I mean, and then you still got, you know, some of these like really great, but underperforming shows like Somebody Somewhere, which is an excellent show that more people should be talking about, for example. And But I think that I would say probably there's been a little bit more conversation about Somebody Somewhere this year than in season one, maybe. I don't feel like it's become a breakout smash, but I also don't think it's ever been the kind of show that was going to become a an entourage or a Sex in the City. But I think if you look at HBO's portfolio, it remains as diverse and varied as it ever was and at that point, all you have to do is is try to kind of scratch your head and go, OK, well, so what is the next thing going to be? What is the next succession going to be? And it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's going to be the idol uh, based on conversations I've had with people about it. I've seen I've seen zero episodes about it. So I have I have no opinion about it as a tangible television show. But but who knows? And, and whatever, you know, the idol, the idol clearly isn't going to be a huge breakthrough in the sense that I believe it's only five episodes and leaving aside the critical savaging it got, it can, it, it's always, it's, it's a little bit more condensed, but again, maybe, maybe there really will be a looky loo factor and people will tune in and it will actually be a surprising smash. And it's not like the weekend doesn't have a gigantic fan base. If the weekend's fan base turns out entirely and watches it, it's going to be relatively successful. So, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just not worried about about HBO because there's been enough precedent that says that HBO reloads. Now, at some point they will not. At some point a calendar year is going to go by and they will not have any big hits or good shows. Maybe. But I it, we ha we haven't hit that calendar year yet. A reminder, if you have questions that you'd like to hear Dan and I discuss on future episodes of TV's Top 5, go ahead and shoot us an email. You can reach us at TV's Top 5. That's numeral 5 at THR.com. Number 4. 
Up next, we return to the Strike Zone, our now regular segment that takes an in-depth look at the ongoing strike between the Writers Guild of America and the AMPTP. Joining us this week is friend of the five, Warren Light, the former showrunner of NBC's Law & Order SVU, who previously created the FX drama Lights Out and was a showrunner on HBO's In Treatment. He joins us from his home state of New York, where he's been leading members of the Guild in an effort to shut down studio-based production after David Simon called him the strike's air traffic controller. Light previously joined us for our very special and, and very focused June 5th, 2020 episode uh, for an enlightening conversation about Hollywood and the way that it has traditionally portrayed law enforcement. It's a really, really great episode. What what number was that one, Leslie? That was episode 73. It's a great episode. Thank you so much for joining us again, Warren. Nice to be back uh, and, and nice to not be employed while I'm doing the podcast. It makes, it, makes me less of a target. Yeah, I know. Uh, we understand that things didn't go so smoothly after uh, you joined us in uh, June 2020. Well, I I, um, I did a bad thing. I spoke to you guys without getting permission. And, and now I don't have to ask permission. So, <laughs> Well, we appreciated it regardless, because that was a tough time. And we did appreciate that you were very, very candid in a very, very difficult moment. Yeah. That was one of our one of my favorite interviews that we've done on the show. So thanks again for 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 doing that and subjecting yourself to that and putting your career on the line um, to do what to do the right thing. It was worth talking about and the strike is worth talking about. So. Yeah. So I always like to start these interviews with a similar question. How long have you been a WGA member and how many times have you gone out on strike as a member of the guild? Uh, you know, I think I joined. My memory is there was a small strike in 84 right after I joined, like a tiny little job action. That I, uh, But uh, I, I think I joined in 84. I, I, I had some odd little national lampoon show that never went. And I was mostly, you know, writing horror movies and cabaret acts back then. But I got into the guild with with um, a, a show spun off of my national lampoon stuff Um but by 87, that was a, 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 a good long, that was maybe the longest strike in Guild history. I think that was over 150 days. And then obviously 2007, 2008, I, I took my not quite one-year-old daughter on, uh, on, a, on the picket lines in December. And uh, she's 16 and she just marched with me again. Of all the issues that are on the table for the Guild right now, which is the most concerning t- for you? To me, it, every writer will have a different answer to that. To me... Streaming residuals is is um is a focus, but the inability on a larger scale, the inability of writers to make a decent living under the current streaming model. Just the 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 changes that have happened in the last ten years that have pulled the rug out from writers' ability to earn a living or to get through the lean periods with residuals. It's it's basically they got to pay us more. Yeah. So fast forward to this week. Now this is week four of the strike. You were among the speakers this week at the WGA's rally at the Rock at 30 Rock. How does the tone of this strike compare to the others that you've been involved with in the past? And what was that rally like for you? A rally was was shocking to me. Uh, I, I, I would say, look, it's a lot easier in New York to strike in May than it is in December. You know, it's, it's a little bit like that time in high school when it's like, can we have class outside? I mean, it's just it's just a nicer time to be out physically it's still tough but it's not the same thing as battling nor'easters so that part is good but the the um both of those strikes had uh, uh 
the tension between the East Coast and the West Coast Guild, between showrunners and, and the hoi polloi, the staffers, all that stuff. I've never seen the degree of unity between the two, the East and the West, and within our guilds that I've seen now. Nothing remotely like it. And on top of that, I've never seen the support, the support we're getting from SAG, who are just out there every day, have tables, marching with us. And then this other thing of, of IATSE and the Teamsters, which I don't think anybody saw coming, that has changed the game in New York completely. So, uh, so the, those, that level of union solidarity and just the general sense of we have to draw the line here. This is it. Um, that, uh, and I think other guilds have... I, what struck me yesterday at the rally was how many signs there were from how many different guilds. How many people are marching with us from the retail workers to, to um, the building superintendents? The, the, these unions, it's some sort of inflection point where people cannot stand the uh, gaps, the, the, the pay disparity. And they see this, I, I think, to my surprise, somehow the studios are so tone deaf, they've gotten people to sympathize with TV writers. It's, 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 it's shocking to me. But they, they've made it so difficult for writers to make a living in New York, to raise a family in New York and in L.A., where we all, those are the two main places where we live and work. And they've made it almost impossible for people. And, and that has caused uh, a degree of unity I've never seen before, and a sense of resolve, uh, to the point where this morning we had two dozen people at 2 a.m. out on the street blocking billions which is metaphorically perfect, uh, from shooting at multiple locations, multiple gates, and we were able to funnel people in there till noon today. And they, they, getting writers to go out on a line at 2 a.m. because somebody told us we need to be there at 2 because the Teamsters get there at 3, and if they see us there, they won't cross. That's a different level of, that's different than your father's strike where we would march around Black Rock. And I miss the, the only thing is I miss that chant more money, less moon vests. That's the only thing I miss about it. <laughs> uh, but, but there's a, a, a degree of uh, solidarity that surprises me and a commitment that surprises me. You know, I, I've spoken with a number of WGA members uh, who have been picketing the studios here on the West Coast. And when the strikes started, is that where you went? Because it does seem like, you know, the the shift to location picketing is something that has developed in the, in the week since the strike started. I don't. I, yeah, I think the first there was the standard. Let's go pick it outside of you know a corporate he headquarters. But uh, I think things changed. I think it was that Friday night after the strike was called we, when uh, Severance was shooting out in, in, in the you know in the studios in New York are not located conveniently or in decent place. They're usually surrounded by like toxic waste dumps and uh, LIEs. <laughs> but they're not in they're not in uh, nice residential areas and they're hard to get to. And a group of people have been holding the line on severance till about six at night. And everybody's beginning to communicate on chat groups and different, we're, we're, it's all being felt out. It's not, it hasn't been figured out yet. And we suddenly get word that the, the line can't hold much past 545. Uh, it's, it, so they'll go, they'll go back to work. The line will, will go away. But the Teamsters hadn't crossed all day. That's a win. We're all texting each other. Go ahead, go home. You did good. And three more people show up. And now you had four people marching from five we're walking in a circle in front of the gate from 5 45 at night to midnight and everybody on the crew seemed to be pulling for them um mm -hmm. 
and you you sense something happening and videos are getting passed around and it was uh we didn't yet have the ability to get people there i we've since adapted to that but we you know they just held the guys are like no we're cool we'll hang out and then the crew said the crew got word back you know the producers don't want to shut down because they don't want to look like three guys marching four guys walking shut the shut the show down so they're going to make us sit here until you guys leave and somehow those guys uh uh, Starley Kind, Joe Odipo, and, and a couple other people just said, well, then we're not going. And they outlasted him. And it shut down at around midnight. And that's when everybody was like, oh, three people, four people in a circle. It, it, and it's not the, it's the power of that circle and it's the Teamsters and IATSE not crossing. That's a combination of uh, leverage that never existed. And then, then on a very, uh, I would say, ad hoc or chaotic, or maybe the correct term is decentralized way, people started, um, first of all, we started getting tips from lots of people about, you know, everybody in New York can take out a cell phone when they see a no parking sign tomorrow because Ghost is shooting here or Severance is shooting. We started getting all of those. I got a little more public on Twitter saying we need people, and people started People on some of the shows start to let us know. People, we started getting information about shoots, and we got the, we, you know, there were the missteps at first. We don't want to see shows canceled because of the pickets. We want to try and get people some salary, some IATSE. We don't want people to give up their entire salaries, but we want to disrupt as much as we can. It's been we've been learning as we go, but it went. It really was bottom up. There's some good organizers at the guild. There were some missed signals. There were big rallies when we needed bodies. Uh, you know, I, I had like 12 people at five gates shutting down a show and there were 400 people eight blocks away. And I just ran up there and said, I need 20 people now. Come with me. And, you know, four of them knew me and the others, I don't know, they just followed. And we, we shut that show down. But it wasn't, it's taken a while to get up to speed. And I, I think now the Guild realizes that this is a pretty powerful thing. Uh, and we're, you know, if if the whole idea is to empty the pipeline, they won't get serious with us. They could have solved this. They could have solved this in six hours on May first. Everyone knows what needs to be done here, but they want to. They're trying to prove a point or whatever. I don't. I can't get inside their heads. Um, so, if the whole point is to to empty the pi pipeline, so they know they have to come back to the table. The quickest way to empty the pipeline is not to wait until all the shows are shot, but to stop the shows from shooting. And if the other guilds are working with us, I don't think this was anticipated. I'll put it that way. I'm curious about the anticipation part. Like, what was the reaction when you guys first were shoot, uh, shutting down these productions? And how has that changed now that, that they sort of see, do see you coming to some degree? Well, they do. It's a cat and mouse game now where they, they move calls up from 6 a.m. to 4 a.m., and we have to get there an hour and a half. There, there, are fake call sheets going out. They're doing. It's, 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 it's. Uh, this is how, you know, there, there are people whose job it is to avoid us, and they're good at their job. But, but, um, I think the first reaction was was was. It's a it's a strange thing to stand in front of a truck and say we're trying to uh, we're picketing here. We're trying. We're asking you not to cross the line. And the first time you do that and a guy uh, turns and honks his horn, it's empowering. Uh, and then people starting to communicate best practices. 
get in touch with the shop stewards when you get, you know, people are beginning. We, it, it's, it's evolving every day. Uh, and, and the flow of information is evolving uh, and, and God helped the showrunners who treated their crews badly because, um, karma is, is, is a bitch. And, and, and there are people, uh, who I guess ha have not endeared themselves to crew or, 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 uh, or neighbors that they, where they shoot. And, um, and that, that's been working against them. You know, some very decent people have also been shut down. I don't, but it's been, it's been, um, surprising. Uh, the, uh, uh people are just, they know what the studio, they, they know that if this keeps going, we're all going to be temps and, 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 and Zaslav will be, you know, on a yacht. And the, the tone deafness of this in, in Cannes today with, you know, Dom Perignon flowing like water. It's like having like Leona Helmsley moment after Leona Helmsley moment. <laughs> yeah. All the while his streamer, you know, really screwed up the launch with a, you know, generic credits looping writers and directors and, executive yeah, producers and, and, and everything else your only hope <laughs> you know and, and he, he i think he kind of they'll, they'll that will get corrected quickly because they they um you know i think i think the hope of the studios must be well we'll get a sweetheart deal from the dga and and um and we'll we'll say everyone now should go back to work i don't yeah, know except that the, except they're the 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 issues that that the dga have or that the DGA has compared with the, the many issues that the writers have, there's limited overlap between that, the two. That, that so the idea of taking much. the writer's guild, taking the DGA deal or SAG after taking the same deal that the DGA took, that's off the table to me, at least from my vantage point. And you tell me if I'm wrong here, because there's, well, there's it, so many more issues me, affecting the writer's guild. That's why I thought they could settle with us. A lot of our issues were not subject to pattern bargaining. So it doesn't, you know, pattern bargaining, you give me 2%, you got to give somebody else 2% and all the other guilds and it adds up. Mini rooms don't cost them anything to fix. They fix that for us. It, there are no mini rooms for actors or directors. It was, and it would have felt like a big issue was being addressed and it wouldn't have been subject to pattern bargaining. And I can't for the life of me understand why they couldn't have made that calculus. That was the, that was the, what a, what a place to make it, to give, to, to give back just here's a big give and it's not going to you don't have to worry about sag you don't have to worry about IATSE, you don't have to worry about you know what we get a bump in the health plan everybody gets a bump this wasn't that and they couldn't bring themselves to do it and it's uh there's a i don't know if it's hubris i don't know what it i don't understand it it was like that i thought well i'll settle that out right away because it's not worth it to them just pay a little more for a shorter run of weeks and and that deal goes that and that's a big unifying thing for members of the guild. So you take that away, you have less reason for people to stay out. And they left it unanswered. Yeah, and you know, getting back to the the targeted picketing and and filming locations, I, I'm curious: is there a concern that that's impacting more than than just the studios? Like, you know, writers have already been paid for the scripts that they're that the studios are trying to film right now. But below the line, et cetera, these are all employees who haven't been paid yet. Um, do you have concern? You mentioned this before, but is there a concern that some of these shows may never resume production? I mean, there are parallels here to what we saw with COVID, where obviously everything was forced to shut down because of the pandemic, but then some things never came back up. And that's obviously we've, we've seen that this that could happen from previous strikes, too. There's tremendous concern and empathy at every meeting I go to about how do we do this? That's why I said uh, there was a, a shutdown on Sunday. 
And we knew where they were going to be at 5 a.m. And we knew they had a location move. And we let them go on the clock. First of all, shooting on Sunday. I, I only show around 250 episodes uh, of TV in New York. I never shot on a Sunday. That's like the third rail of of of, of costs. You know, everybody's on, on the meters running fast on a Sunday. And they were shooting at 5 a.m. on Sunday. And, and we decided not to picket the first shoot so that everyone could clock in and then pick it to where they were moving so that they were shut down, but everybody had been clocked in for the day with double overtime. Um, and so, yes, there's tremendous concern. We're Ultimately, this is, uh, I don't mean to be black and white in my thinking about this. Ultimately, everything's going to shut down because they're going to run out of material. So on some level, the sooner the shutdowns happen, the quicker they're forced back. That, that's a, sort of a black and white way of thinking about it. But on an individual level, when we talk to crews at these shutdowns, we listen to them. And they're not monoliths. There are some old-time guys who are like, we knew this was coming since November. You do what you have to do. And then there's some guys who are like, I got to get I got to get three weeks in before July. And it's, it's really complicated. It's, nobody is cavalier about it at all in the Guild. And I think to a degree, some of the you know, the uh, UPMs and ADs have been trying to manipulate our strikers with that, with some success. You know, we're aware that there's a human cost to this, where the secret power of the studios is they don't care. Um, so, so uh, uh, I yes, we're keenly aware of it. There will be damage. It was all avoidable. That's the, the uh, to me, the heartbreaking thing. This absolutely avoidable strike, and they know it, and they, they, they made a choice. And you also saw some of that concern uh, with the Tony decision, which because everyone knows without the Tonys, oh, now everyone knows we had to make <laughs> make a case that without the Tonys, eight or nine shows closed the next day in New York. And that throws hundreds of actors out, hundreds of IATSE crew members out, many of whom, that's a different local, but these guys have been walking with us every day. And so there was a concerted effort in on the East Coast to make the case for CBS doesn't make a lot of money on the tone. Nobody makes nobody makes any money in theater except for Lin Manuel Miranda, who makes all the money. And it's good for him, and he's wonderful. And he shows up at our pickets. So we 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 made the decision to collectively, it's not worth the pain that's going to be inflicted on people who aren't even in our industry, who the sister industry, and it's a fragile ecosystem here, still getting over COVID. It took a lot longer for theater to get back than TV, and so that was a. Um, that was a calculus. And every time we shut a show down, there's a calculus now. And we are in contact with shop stewards and we're in contact with, with, with other, other guilds. And the executives are in contact of, of our guild are in contact with the executives of, of those guilds. You know, it, it's, there's, there's, um, uh, it, yes, we're, we're concerned and trying to figure it out. And every day it's a different challenge. Yeah. And I, I know Dan wants to ask about the Tonys, but while we're still on the picketing part of, of all of this, uh, you know, we've I've seen a number of tweets from writers on the West Coast here who claim that studios are trying to sabotage some of the, the picketing efforts, dubbing all gates as neutral gates or parking big trucks near picket lines. Um, have you found that to be the, the case on the East Coast when you're picketing the studios? And then we've also heard rumors, for example, about studios issuing fake call sheets to try to throw off your oh, rapid yeah. response we, teams, for example. Oh, they're doing... They're doing. They uh, to me one of the worst things they did on a couple of uh, sets. They told their crew members that our picketers were getting paid. 
Th those what? guys are getting paid to pick it while you're losing your check. Uh, and that, that started on one set in particular. And, you know, you, so the guys come out and go, you guys are getting paid to pick it and you expect us to lose. And you have to. So, yes, they're trying. There are definitely fake call sheets. There are definitely multiple locations. Uh, uh, they're, they're, you know, all of this effort could be expended into cutting the deal. But they, they uh, and, and, and I, I don't think it seems to, it doesn't seem to be working for them. But yeah, they, some of the studio, the neutral gate, we saw a couple of neutral gates set up. And then we just put guys at the neutral gate taking pictures of crew members walking in. And I think there's a certain number of violations of neutral gates, and then you lose the right to a neutral gate. The neutral gates in New York are different. Because they're not, so if you're shooting in an office building, it's just another entrance or, or something. It's not like a, a we don't have that, 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 that real estate that, that the West Coast has. So a neutral gate can just be the front door to an office building. But if we see craft services and, and props going in there because it's neutral, then, then, then that can't, then we have, you know, we put one guy holding a sign upside down, not picketing with a camera and, and we monitor that. But yeah, they, they will, you know, there's also been like some like Pinkerton like security guards at some of these places. They're, 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 this is there is probably a, a, a playbook for this, uh, how to how to demoralize a strike. I'm, I'm sure there's a playbook. It's, it's kind of sad to me that they're expending that effort and started instead of saying, well, why don't we talk about what's going on here? But this is this is how it's going to be played out for the moment. I'm really curious about those conversations that you guys have with the crew members and with the people from the other guilds. What are the what are the issues that you guys have to explain to them, talk through with them versus what are the things that they get innately? I think they get it. I think they get that we're getting screwed. I don't I, I, I don't think that requires a lot of we, we, you know, you walk them through what's going on. W their concerns are are uh, are uh, uh, yes. You, how am I, I need to? We need you can't shut us, if you shut us down five days in a row. The show's going to move to Vancouver. You know, it, it, it's 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 very basic stuff. It's it, there. You know, and again, it's not mono a monolith. There's different opinions within crews. Um, there's a couple of shows that are like, I don't care if you shut us down completely. Um, I hate these guys. You know, <laughs> I mean. There's, it, and then there's other people who are like, I, I don't see why I have to go out while you guys get, but there's a, a range of opinions, uh, but you walk them through, we're trying to basically navigate how much damage we're inflicting and, on, and, and where is that damage being inflicted and how do we, how do we make sure the studios know we, we are for real without uh, losing shows. And it's imperfect. And there are go there are shows that are going to be lost uh, or move. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's essentially it's asymmetrical warfare, you know, uh, and you have to be nimble and you have to uh, care, but we care about a lot of things and they're going to be blunt. You mentioned also sort of the the problems that showrunners who might not have been so good with their uh, management of other guilds and with the community and all of that when shooting in New York that they might have had. But you also mentioned that you've shot 250 episodes of SVU. I mean, you've shot a lot of episodes of television in the streets of New York City. What have you discovered in the past couple weeks about the relationships that you built over those years and over That kind of surprised me, but... Uh this is how I sort of like David Simon is now calling me the guild's air traffic controller. Just by 
uh, you know, uh, longevity. I look around, I'm one of the older guys this active. Uh, you know, I was at the rally yesterday and people are, uh, there's a lot of people I know from a lot of different, you know, I, how many actors have gone through the, the SVU stages and the criminal intent stages, you know, uh, in treatment was a smaller group, but the other shows have been, it's 30 a week, 40 a week times 200. So, uh, uh, uh yeah, I, I, I inadvertently have a lot of people calling me or asking me things or it, it's, it's odd. I became one of those, uh, very inadvertently, one of those connectors where, uh, uh, you know, there's a guy on a crew here who wants some, who do I tell this to? Who do I, you know, and I'm, I, I didn't anticipate that. I didn't anticipate that tweeting, we need extra bodies at this place would work. Uh, but it, it, we get extra bodies. It, it, it's, it's, it's all, uh, it's early days, but, and it's very improvisational. But it, it helps that I know, it feels like I know a lot, uh, just, I've, and I have not been horrible to the people who, you know, SVU has a nice rep in New York and everybody kind of appreciate, everyone loves Mariska. You know, it's, a, it's, it's just a different, you know, she, she, she could run for mayor and be elected in an hour here. So um, she could. Well, we, <laughs> you might want to you might consider that for the next elections. <laughs> we, we've done worse repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> so many of the pickets here on the West Coast have really been, there's a lot of themed events. You know, this week there was a superhero day at Warner Brothers. Um, there's even a WGA uh, karaoke thing, you know, thing where, you know, it's, it's a group that takes the karaoke stuff out to, diff to different studios to do that. And, and there's Taylor Swift days and Beyonce days. And uh, there was a Newsies day. I mean, there's, there's so much, but we don't hear about that kind of thing uh, coming from the East Coast. How would you say the tone compares from... Uh, it's like the difference between New York Knicks or Philadelphia fans and LA fans at a Laker game. <laughs> it's just, you know, like, what's the joke? Philly, there was a show, and it was a, a very decent show on her. And, but Philly SAG, we got there, and Philly SAG was like, you know, they always say Philadelphia fans would boo Mother Teresa. And it, 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 the Philly SAG showed up, and that show... That that was unfortunate. That show closed up because they they like we can't we can't deal with this. New York, it's just kind of there's this. I guess some some people take some pride in it. it. Was two in the morning yesterday, and there's people on the waterfront at Greenpoint, you know, chatting with each other. I got this gate covered. I got this, and they're sending pictures, and it's like the end of the earth, you know. And and somebody's like, oh, there's a lady upstairs who says we can use her bathroom tonight. I mean, it's. It's, um, there's a little pride in how hardcore it is. I think there was one Star Trek thing that I didn't go to because it just was like, I can skip that. But that was apparently successful. Um, but, but in general, uh, I think people here, I, I really just think they, they, once we found out what's going on with Teamsters and IATSE, there's been this shift. We're still, the, the rally yesterday was great. And I was, the, the range of speakers and the energy, and th those are good events to have. But I think we're done with this sort of, you know, pick it for two hours and get a get a get a martini thing that that happened in eighty eighty seven and two thousand. I think it's it's getting the move is toward mobilize getting people from those who are used to doing that to come out, even if they don't come out at two a.m. or five a.m. If they can, if we can get reinforcements at ten a.m., that's great because these a lot of these shows are like trying to outlast 
how long can those guys stay out there? We'll wait until they go and then we'll punch in. And so it's, um, it, it's just, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, I, I read about it and I, it, it's just, uh, um, I, I guess it just seems like a, a it, it's a different culture. Yeah. You know, obviously beyond the financial impact to the studios, and we've heard estimates from from my sources that it's in the vicinity of $200,000 a day for a show that, that shuts down for a day. More do than that. Targeted, so. Yeah, exactly. It's that. all show by show. But um, do these targeted location pickets and subsequent shutdowns do more for the WGA? Does this really help with morale, with solidarity? It, it, it does a couple of things. First of all, it lets other guilds know we're serious. So we're getting support from other guilds uh in, in a way you know the people respect you know no one likes to be bullied and people respect that we're punching back i think so it's 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 creating excitement within the union world in new york it's creating um a sense of um a, i'd say accomplishment when people go out there and they they hold the line for 10 hours and and the show shuts down that's that the people feel like that was a, a good day's worth of picketing, you know? Uh, so there's, I, I think it's been good for morale. I think it's been good, uh, to send the message to the studios, uh, you know, and I think the costs are probably the amount of even shows that aren't shutting down are spending a fortune. Yesterday, there was a show in silver cup East that, you know, they, they moved their call time up from five to four to three thirty to three. And they housed all the actors at hotels um to so to get them there and there's vans and they were there's extra vans being it, it's it's costing them a lot and i look i've run shows every time you there's an overage you you get you're on the phone with business affairs you know it, it it's this is people know this this is costing the meters running on a lot of this stuff a sunday shoot uh that you start that gets interrupted that's that's not $200,000 um uh, uh some of these shows are are it's it's costing them, and they're they're. I think it, it's sending a message. So uh, it, it's working both in terms of morale, and tactically and strategically. I think. I mean, and there will be. Look, it, this this there will be a response. You know, there will be. Um, eventually, uh, the AMPTP will stop issuing their word salad, and 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 try to figure out other ways to undercut this. And they're they're doing what they can with with these. We call them crewmers, crew rumors. And there's the, the crewmer is going around that we're all getting paid to pick it is a, is a perfect sentence. I want to talk more about the, the Tony issue because it was a thing where there was the initial reaction and the initial, no, we're not going to give the waiver. And then there really did feel like there was an uprising coming specifically from the East Coast of, of writers saying, here is why this matters. Here is why you need to understand that this matters. Here's what we need to do. What did that feel like inside of sort of the initial disconnect and then where you found the resolution? Well, the disconnect was to be expected. It's a, Why would somebody in L.A. understand how fragile the theater ecosystem is and how intertwined it is? with look during covid we you know all i was talking to kevin wade blue bloods we were all trying to get work for the equity guys um and those people get our you know we get better rated nobody watches a show because i wrote it as kevin wade said that i was like yeah i guess that's true they watch it because you have patty lapone not will get you some viewers the different broadway stars will get you viewers and they do and so we like bringing them in and 
for us to to take them out, I don't think the West Coast understood uh, what that would do immediately. Look, the night my show 100 years ago won the Tony Award, had we not won that night, we would have closed that night. The closing notice had been posted. It's that primal. It's that It's that basic. And you're going to, and a lot of shows are holding on for the Tony. So we all knew that here. They didn't know it there. Uh, I, I think there was probably could have been handled differently if, if people were had to approach it differently. It shouldn't have just been a flat waiver request. There were things that were inelegantly handled at the start. But to uh, one, one of the things I respected a lot was that people here spoke up and the West Coast listened. And, that, you know, I know on, on, on uh, uh, superficially, oh, you're, you're cutting people a break. It's one night. It doesn't rerun. Nobody makes money on it. It's not a, it's not the, uh, uh, you can't, and it showed us that, that they're respecting what we're doing here. I think had we not been kicking ass here and the West Coast Guild is, is very aware of what we're doing. And I think very appreciative and, and that they were able to, uh, reevaluate the pain for gain of this and listen to us meant a lot. And also kind of reassured us that if there is a good offer on the table, they will recognize it, that they, that they're capable, you know, there's a sort of a tendency, uh, uh, to make, to Manichaean decision-making on, and, and studios and guilds when you get into battle. And the fact that they could, that the position could evolve was, ex, uh, was important for New York guilds. And by the way, the next day equity flooded our lines. They were on the picket lines. They were everywhere. It's, it set a tone that they're capable of, uh, evolving and resolving things and listening. And that's really important as these things heat up. And, you know, CBS, they get an unscripted show uh, that they don't make a nickel on, I don't think. And I, I, you can bet that people will get up there receiving awards talking about the strike. How much of the tonal difference between the East Coast and West Coast lines and and striking and and sort of methodology stems from how many of you guys have this theatrical background this this background in in what feels to me like the much more progressive left-leaning environment of broadway and environments well, there's just it's hard to be it's harder to be um soft here even if you make money you're on the subway nobody wants to be in in the car getting driven somewhere because it's gonna be three hours when you can take this up People here, we don't have the stage system that they have. We're, we're shooting in much tighter spaces. So everything about the way people work here, we're more, not so much that everyone in the New York Guild comes from theater, but we all know, we all know what, uh, actors who we worked with who are going to be laid off if that goes through. We also know that the dramatist, the theater world and the dramatist guild is uh, a lot more LGBTQ, a lot more BIPOC, uh, and that's, why do you want to? Why do you want to blow that solidarity up? Why aren't we? You know, who's going to be put out of work when you shut down a Broadway show? It's it's different. It's just a different group of people who are struggling even now. You know, and also we were aware that some of the uh, theatrical health plans. You know, one of the things that Tony's does is it launches the tours. You see the musical and the Broadway tour, tour launches. Those health plans uh, were decimated during COVID and they're just getting back on their feet. And if Broadway shows can't get their tours launched, that would have been 
possibly a lethal blow to some health plans. That's just stuff people weren't, why would anyone know that unless you're talking to the, the head of some of these guilds or talking to people on the, on the uh, you know. So I, I, it's, we don't, you know, nobody I know has a screening room in New York. Nobody I know, you know, it's, we, we, it's, it's a different sort of, you're out in the street more and, you're, you know, maybe it's just that cultural thing is we're, we're out, we're out on the street. So we're used to being on the street. We're not in, in our little cars. It's, it's just, it just feels, it's just everything, every cliche, every trope leads us to a, a different way of, of picketing. And, and well, I, on the other hand, I respect those guys. It's freaking hot out there. And if, if they need, and if thing days get hundreds of people out there, great. Uh, what, what seems to be getting people out here in New York is those guys think they can shoot again today. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, getting back to the you know the, the rapid response teams, how frequently do those do those teams take action? I've heard either daily or every two days. No, we're out every day. We're out the the uh, and uh, there's this. We don't post where we're going, you know, because then if they know where we're going, so but we're we're out pretty much every day. I guess yesterday because there was a rally and a picket of the view, we we may have been a uh, uh, that that was enough. <laughs> Although some of the guys were pissed off. That they weren't trying to shut something down on top of it. It was like I can do this that way, but but uh, yeah, no, we're out every day, and and we're we're hitting two or three shows a day, and we're we're, we're mixing them up. Um, so some guys come into the rotation a little more often for a variety of reasons. But. And you know, I, I've heard that there are multiple teams working on targeted picketing across the guild, each one headed by their own captain-like figure. Um, there's and there's you- all kinds of weird organizational there's you know yeah uh, i've been stunned by the efficacy of social media i've been stunned by individual actions people saying i i can be here at 2 a.m can i get four people to be with me at 2 a.m can i get seven people to join me at six and that kind of stuff it's um it's it's it, it's it's really grassroots it, and um I mean, I've heard people communicating via signal, email, text, all all of the different kinds of ways. Yeah, like we call it the bat signals, you know, and and um, uh, and, and to my surprise, social media works too. We we had a picket in Jersey a couple nights ago, and they were down to three people, and I put something out, and nine people got on the line, and that show shut. And, and it's kind of you don't know, like if people are nearby and they see it, and, and now the guild is figuring this out, and and. We're getting more frequent emails uh, advising us of what's on tap. But, you know, the very nature of it is it has to move quickly and can't be, you know, uh, you can't put out a big email at noon today about where we're surprise picketing tomorrow. I mean, is it is it true that generally strike captains who are good with crew mem- crew members who go to work early, that some of those crew members check in? With the strike captains walk the picket line and then go into work is that is that something that's happening there's a lot of communication there's a lot of uh we respect iatsi enormously we all work with them and we respect the teamsters enormously and there's a lot of a lot more at the start i think we we made some mistakes and there's but there's uh you know there's a also a lot of these riders have been on set which is another strike issue so so, you know, I, I know this prop person or I know that wardrobe person or I know, you know, and, and, and it's so it's it, it's not a stretch to get in touch with someone and say, you know, uh, how how much do you guys need? What's what's the temperature? How you know, and, and we will and we'll hear it's like 
this show's getting is is just about is the, what you don't want is to get to a point where people say, "Fuck you guys, we're crossing," or "Screw you guys, we're crossing." I'm sorry. Uh, so uh, you don't want people to just break the. You want to so we're all that's being worked out, and luckily there are a lot of strike captains and and writers who have pre existing relationships with with people. You know, uh, you know it's. Maybe things are more hierarchical out west. I don't know, but but uh, it, it's it's there's a little uh, grace on both sides. I think here. Quick follow up to that. You know, are, are there rules of engagement that WGA members are supposed to follow when picketing a location? I mean, we've heard that sometimes that those can't have the opportunity or not opportunity, but that we've heard that some of those can get hostile. Yeah, they've gotten hostile, and we've talked about it. And what can we do differently? We can put all the rules out. We want some guys on the ground. He's got to be, you hope, you, there have been some guys who did remarkable jobs de-escalating. And, and uh, you know, it's like, even if you have an issue with New York cops, don't go at it with the cops. That's a, one of the rules that we have. Uh, even if you de-escalate, nothing is worth alienating uh, people that we need solidarity with. Is the, I would say is that, you know, is our is a general rule, but but every time we try and establish rules, then the next day something crops up that we had never anticipated. You know, it's just it's it's very fluid. On a purely practical level, what kind of hours are you keeping at this point? Uh, I'm I'm in I mean, there I'm okay. I'm tired. Uh, I'm not out there too because I'm doing more of this stuff. Uh, but I'm I'm surprised at how much time it's taken up. But there's people. There's people we just say you got to stop. You got to you got to take tomorrow off because there's people you know you, the adrenaline gets going, uh, and I mean we keep saying it's a it's a marathon not a sprint. But people have been sprinting for four weeks, and and um, I don't know. I guess people are finding uh, reservoirs of energy, but but uh, and then more bodies are coming in now. I just call them, my fellow guild members. I can call bodies. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, are, 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 are realizing what's going on and the guild is now working more toward, toward that. But people are, there are people, I mean, uh, I was at a meeting, at meetings yesterday and some of those people, the meetings ended at five, some of those people were out there at two in the morning till noon today, you know, and you see, you, you'll, they, uh, uh, and there, that was, this is, this is my line. I'm not leaving till the, till they shut down. You know, it's like. You know, wrapping up here, would you say the targeted picketing is the biggest difference between this strike and even the last one in 2007 or even the others that you've been involved with? Well, to me, the, 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 the targeted picketing is, uh, is the result of the solidarity with the Teamsters and IATSE. And that to me is the, the, uh, one of the biggest differences that I would say that the solidarity, uh, with SAG joining us on the lines in huge numbers and, and the, that solidarity and that sense of, uh, you know, the, the, the actors know what's happened to them. We're not, we're not stupid. We know our residuals are $400 instead of $8,000 and the actors aren't stupid either. They know that they used to get double top of show if they had a name and now they're down to top of show or now they're down to, we're only using you for four days. So we're going to give you a day rate. These are name actors who've been working for 40 years. And, and you're not going to see any residuals. So, you know, it, it, it's, you don't have to educate people. They know they're being screwed. 
I think this is all bubbled up from the rank and file up to the up to the leadership of the guilds. I don't think people knew how pissed off everybody was until they started comparing notes. I think you got that survey about two years ago or a year ago on a scale of one to 10. And people were like 20, 30, you know, people were, people started comparing notes about mini rooms or I worked on three shows and I still didn't make health insurance over the course of two years. And, you know, that's what motivates this. So, uh, you know, and not only that, they've trained the two or three generations of writers now to realize you can't make a living as a writer. So people have other gigs. They, They've said that, you know, people can, people can figure this out because they're used to being out of work now because they'll get a five-week mini room and then you're on hold for two months and then you may get an assignment, you may not. So people have had to scramble in a way that, you know, when I joined, it was a gentleman's guild, you know, and there were all these, you know, that, that was like all, all these old white guys. And if you wrote for Law and Order in 1989, you made a you made a, a hell of a living for the next ten years, and if you would you know if you wrote for Tackingers or whatever those shows were, uh, those guys were they were guaranteed an upper middle class life. It was understood that you, whatever you had to do to break in, once you got in, you were a made guy, and that compact has been broken. Well, Warren, thank you so much for taking time out to join us this week and for being so candid. Oh well, I try. Nice to see you both. Thanks. As a reminder, this is an open invitation that anyone from the AMPTP or its member studios and streamers are welcome to join us for a conversation here on Strike Zone. But they, again, have taken a very different strategy than that of the Writers Guild. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches, Max has a new Gremlins animated show. Dan, I know that you're very excited about that. Apple has Comedy Platonic. Arnold Schwarzenegger is FUBAR for Netflix, and Disney Plus launches American Born Chinese. Dan, what you got for us? A lot of TV this week, but the thing is, this may possibly be one of the last weeks where I feel as thoroughly overwhelmed by the amount of TV as there unquestionably is this week. We are finally reaching the end of that period that we have discussed multiple times, the end of the Emmy window, et cetera, et cetera. So a couple shows are sneaking in under the under the wire. Not that FUBAR is going to be getting a lot of Emmy nominations, but, you know, scheduling-wise, that's where it is. But yes, we are also heading into the somewhat slower month of June, and then, I don't know if you've heard about this, there has been an ongoing four-week strike, and so, you know, we will see what the weeks ahead offer. But on the other hand, again... There's lots of TV this week. Uh, you mentioned Gremlins Secrets of the Mogwai, and that has already premiered, and it is up there on Max. Uh, yay, Max. And it is, of course, it is adapted by Tse Chun uh, from, of course, the Joe Dante film, I, which was written by Christopher Columbus. I, I don't really know how much credit anyone's giving Christopher Columbus anymore for that, which is too bad, because Gremlins is a terrific little script. Uh, it has obvious problems, uh, most particularly kind of the exoticizing of the world that Gizmo the Gremlin came from. And that is where Gremlin's Secrets of the Mogwai comes in. It is set primarily in 1920 Shanghai, and it puts the Mogwai and Gremlins into a Chinese folkloric context, which I found fairly effective. Um, this is 
look, anyone who knows me on social media or in any other world knows that Gremlins is a, a movie that was very, very important to me when I was young. It was uh, definitely a movie I was obsessed with as, as a, I guess, seven-year-old, give or take. I talked in my review about my my love for the Gremlins uh, record series, which Hardee's made available back in the day. Loved me some Gremlins, uh, very much like New, ba- New Batch. I know that there is a there's a small but vocal, maybe not even small, there's a medium-sized but vocal fan base that insists that the Gremlins sequel is a better movie than the original Gremlins. I don't believe that. I, I think that it is a funnier movie. I think that it is a perhaps even a more Joe dante movie in that it is utterly enamored with mayhem and well-executed mayhem but but I don't think it has kind of the the grounding that the France uh, that the Frank Capra backdrop the Kingston Falls backdrop of the original movie gives it so anyway that has nothing at all to do with Gremlin Secrets of the Mogwai which is just it's interestingly animated you you saw a bunch of critics attempting to describe what cell shading was uh which is in very 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 broad strokes because i am not an animation expert uh somebody in a question that we didn't answer asked if i watch a lot of anime and if i have particular anime opinions and the answer to that question is no not really uh i'm not opposed to anime but it is definitely not a world that i am an expert in uh, so anyway, the the animation is computer animation that has been designed to simultaneously look like hand-drawn animation, which is a, a difficult thing to do. It kind of takes out the the dead-eyed, uncanny valley 3D-ness of computer animation that it can sometimes get when it doesn't work. But it also can kind of give the look of being a slightly cheaper version of computer animation. So if you look at all of the various... Uh, I guess mostly it's been DreamWorks animated movies that have been repurposed into television shows like the Madagascars and whatnot. And and a lot of them, the dominant aesthetic is mostly, yeah, that looks a little bit like the movies, only much cheaper. This gives that impression for a little bit, but after about an episode, I settled in and I was really enjoying what the animation was. Because I think the animation does a very, very good job with the Mogwai, with, with Gizmo in particular making him adorable in all the ways that you require a Mokwai to be adorable. And then when the gremlins begin to pick up in later episodes, they're all wacky and funny in those ways. Uh, but I, I really like the way it used the Chinese settings. I like the way it, it gives the period setting in Shanghai with uh, just really, really good production design for want of a better world. It, word. It, looks, it looks researched and authentic. A lot of the storytelling is grounded in in things where if you Google the particular creature or the specific religious allegory or whatever that's mentioned in the show, you'll discover it's a, it's a real thing and you can, you can follow up and and see how the writers connected those worlds. And I think they did a really good job. The vocal cast, uh, you know, the kids who vote, who voiced the young kids who are attempting to get Gizmo back to his home. They're all very good. And then you get bigger names, Matthew Reese is the villain. He is is very, very good, uh, chewing a lot of scenery, so to speak. And then lots and lots of cameos for from fun people. Uh, James Hong has is very, very good as the main character's grandfather. Uh, George Takai is fantastic. Sandra Oh has one great episode. Randall Park has a great episode. Bowen Yang. Lots of really, really good voices. And by the end of 10 episodes, I was I was just completely on board with it. It is 
it is younger skewing than the movies. The movies are are kind of legendary. The first one for its role in helping progress the establishment of the PG thirteen rating, etc. There, there was there was definitely a perception that a lot of people who were taken to see Gremlins as a kid and it traumatized them or scarred them. I did not feel like that was the case. I definitely found the movies scary, but not traumatizing. This is less scary. It's less mature. It is probably more for kids, but I don't think it's exclusively for kids. I, I think it has a certain maturity to it. Um, and yeah, I, I really, for the most part, just kind of enjoyed it. So um, I, th- I guess the sort of the overlap of Chinese culture maybe means that I go to American-born Chinese uh, next, which is, you know, fine. And I and I really enjoyed American-born Chinese also. And American-born Chinese... Uh, which is on Disney Plus, and it's an adaptation of the very, very uh, popular and beloved graphic novel by Jean Luen Yang, uh, and I think it's just a, a really, really good graphic novel. It's, uh, but it's also adapted by Calvin uh, Calvin Yu, and it is, it's a good piece of adaptation. It, it really is because it understands that certain elements of the graphic novel really just were not going to convert to a live action medium. There was there was just no way certain things commenting on Asian stereotyping or whatever, they required manifestations that were more 2023 than a decade ago and were just visualized in a different way. And so I think that it is a, a very good piece of adaptation and a very good piece of updating material. I think that the for me, the coming-of-age stuff at the center actually worked better than the uh, Chinese folkloric uh, mythological aspects of it. But there's a lot of that. I think that the the main character, played by Ben Wong, is it's just a really good performance and a really likable and universalizing performance. Anyone who has ever been a fish out of water in any situation, particularly in high school, where many people feel like fishes out of water for various reasons— We'll find a lot to relate to. Um, <laughs> it's for whatever reason, the movie, the TV show ended up with basically the entire cast of uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And that's a pretty good cast to be associated with. So you have Michelle Yeoh in a in a key role uh, playing, I believe she's the goddess of something or other. But anyway, she's awesome. She gets to do martial arts. It's tremendous. It it fits right in next to everything, everywhere, all at once. I think that Ki Hui Kwan has a really difficult role here because he's kind of playing, he's playing an actor who was in an 80s sitcom where he was basically playing the Long Duck Dong character to some degree, where it's basically a horrible stereotype, regressive stereotype, and how that impacts both people who watch it and for whom that is their only form of representation, but also for the actors who get associated with it uh, permanently. And, and I, think it's, I think it's a good and subtle performance. But then you stick around, you get, once again, James Hong everywhere, God bless him, guy's 90 years old. Remarkable seeing him in as many places as he is. Uh, you have Stephanie Hsu, who pops up in a in a very good cameo. And it's it's a show that's trying to do a lot of things. There is there's kind of a a kung fu movie from the 70s, sort of a Shaw Brothers aesthetic, which is in one episode. There's a lot of the sort of post Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Wire Foo kind of stuff. And then there's the stuff that really just is straight up coming of age, high school, 
getting picked on by bullies, falling in love with a girl out of your league. The pieces shouldn't necessarily go together, and they really do. I I enjoyed this one a lot. Uh, you can also go back and read Angie Hunt's review on THR. She loved it, and really for good reason. I, I think it's a a very solid show. Uh, I mentioned FUBAR earlier in the segment. Uh, it will not be winning Emmys, uh, but look, having Arnold Schwarzenegger on TV is still kind of fun, and the fact that the show is basically a straight-up ripoff of True Lies in a spring in which we actually had another adaptation of True Lies already that didn't have Arnold Schwarzenegger in it and that was really entirely unsuccessful, canceled after a season. This is better than that. So there's that. You have Arnold Schwarzenegger playing a longtime CIA operative. His professional commitments have caused, caused his family, which knows nothing about his, <clears throat> his job, to fall apart a little. But now he's on the edge of, um, and now he's on the edge of retirement. He's he's looking forward to getting his life back together. And then he discovers on what is supposed to be his last mission that his daughter, played by Monica Barbaro, who people will know from Top Gun Maverick, is also a CIA agent. <gasps> anyway, lots of bickering. Uh, it's the, the biggest problem with the show, honestly, is that it's mostly a comedy, but it's written by people who are not particularly funny. And the humor is is just really it's one dud after another. And it's it's too bad because they're trying hard and they're trying probably too hard. And so the humor all falls flat. The action is okay, but never more than that. It never feels like some big summer blockbuster. And that's kind of the other thing in terms of where it's premiering is it's premiering on the edge of Memorial Day weekend. It's it's okay. You're looking for some sort of blockbuster TV. Here it is. And, and it really doesn't do that. And that's too bad. But I think Monica, uh, Monica Barbaro and Arnold Schwarzenegger are both fine. A lot of the supporting actors are pretty decent. Uh, it's just, it's My neither. My girl, Fortune Feimster. She's she's definitely there. <laughs> I, you know, definitely there. And I have to also add that Fortune Feimster is definitely funnier than this. And I kind of wish that they had maybe let her go a little bit more into her stuff. And that's kind of the nature of what it is, but I think that probably as as a thing to watch after a few beers and uh, some barbecue on on Monday or whatever over the weekend, mm, it's barbecue. It, I'm just I just apparently keep mentioning food because apparently I really am hungry. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a little bit less than okay, but it's definitely better than bad. So that's uh, high praise. <laughs> um, and uh, kind of last, but definitely not least, actually, of these is Apple TV Plus's Platonic, um, which I enjoyed. It does exactly what it, what it promises to do. It's it's the stars of the neighbors doing their neighbors thing now as a TV show. It's it's exactly that, and so it's Rose Byrne and. Seth Rogen playing longtime friends who became estranged for a while, and now they reunite their friendship and have to contemplate 
whether society has determined that men and women can't be friends. Well, if that sounds a little bit like it's tangential to when Harry met Sally, don't worry. When Harry met Sally gets mentioned within the first 10 minutes of the pilot, everyone, everyone involved knows that this is a thing that, uh, that, <laughs> that people associate primarily with one movie in particular. And so they get it out of the way early. And there are a lot of things that the show does smartly in terms of not going down the exact paths that you expect it to go down. And I appreciate that the show is not really these two characters wondering if they actually are in love and moving in that direction. It's just not what the show is. The show is about a woman who, who is in her upper thirties, lower forties, who has become a housewife when she always intended to be a lawyer. And now she doesn't have a purpose and her best friend who is halfway between being a grown up and a boy and isn't really sure what his life is. And they look to each other in moments of, in a moment of crisis. And I think that this, it's a good use of Seth Rogen um, because Nicholas Stoller and, and Francesca Del Blanco know what Seth Rogen is good at. And I think he's very good here. He's kind of half romantic lead, half comic foil, and he does both sides very well. And, and Rose Byrne is, is just, she is such a good comic actress. She is such a willing, foolish looking actress. She is always prepared to make herself look silly and she does it wonderfully. She is extraordinarily funny. Um, and, and so there's a lot of good stuff there. A lot of good supporting performers. Luke McFarlane is very good playing Rose Burns character's husband. Uh, and then lots of people who you kind of know from Twitter and the sketch comedy world as being funny. So whether it's uh, Guy Branham or Vinnie Thomas or um, You're the Worst co-star Janet Varney, um, undeclared co-star Carla Gallo, lots of people who you'll kind of recognize from things and go, oh, I've, I've thought those people are funny, funny in the past. And for the most part, they really just are. And episodes are in the 30 to 35 minute range. And on one hand, and this is absolutely true. This could have been a 90 minute movie. There is, there is no doubt whatsoever that this could have been a, could have been a movie and probably would have moved faster, but I never felt as if episodes were dragging. I watched all 10 episodes and never felt as if I was like, okay, I've seen five episodes. I can move on with my life. Uh, I was I was just happy to keep watching it. It's it's not the funniest show on earth, but it it's funny and it has enough heart and the cast is just really good and really well used. Um yeah, I I enjoyed Platonic. Uh I don't want to say more than I expected to cuz the neighbors movies are fine also. But I had concerns and it does what it does fairly well. So so yeah, so uh, to sort of recap, Gremlin Secrets of the Mogwai on Max, it's younger skewing than the movies, but has some of the same spirit, and I found it entertaining and and not entirely for children, uh, which is nice. Uh, FUBAR, you know, on Netflix, Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's definitely more like a bad Arnold Schwarzenegger movie than like a good Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, but there's comfort in that. So maybe people will enjoy it, but it's, it's definitely not some sort of huge breakout or anything really enjoyed American born Chinese on Disney plus just a great cast, really relatable story. Uh, some good action, lots of good coming of age stuff. 
And then I enjoyed Platonic. Obviously, if you don't like Seth Rogen and you don't like the Neighbors movies and you and you see this cast and you go, Ugh, I can't watch these people. They all get on my nerves. Don't watch it. It's not going to cause you to suddenly reconsider anybody in it. But if you like the kind of shaggy dog comedy that they do, I, I think it's really well executed. And both Seth Rogen and, and Rose Byrne are, are really good. So there you go. Lots of TV. Some of it's pretty decent. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the Twitter. She's at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. Uh, let us know what's working, what isn't working. We always enjoy hearing from y'all, but if you have questions for future mailbags, segments, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. 